This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In early September 1949, loudspeakers blared from a motorcade of Mercedes-Benz trucks parading through Munich, Germany. Curious city dwellers stepped out onto their balconies. Shopkeepers poked their heads out of storefronts and idle cafe patrons set down the newspapers to watch the cars roll past. They listened as enthusiastic criers called out over the loudspeakers, witnessed the miracle doctor appearing at the corner of 10 Sunstrass Platz. Come, pray, and be healed. Thousands of ill and injured invalids poured into the streets, drawn by the promise of a cure. They waited for hours, longing for a sign of their savior. They waited until darkness fell over the city. Finally, at 10 p.m., Bruno Groening appeared on the balcony overlooking the street. He was greeted by deafening cheers. Like so many other places throughout Bavaria, Munich had been captured by the groaning phenomenon. As for Groening himself, he looked out over the crowd and saw the future. He believed that through his God-given powers, he would heal not only the broken amongst his audience, but indeed all of Germany. After enduring decades of conflict and strife, Bruno believed that only he could make Germany whole. But his day of triumph would never come. On the contrary, in the coming months, a series of scandals would leave the miracle doctor disgraced, friendless, and standing trial for murder. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. Today, we're continuing our deep dive into Bruno Groening's faith healing movement. 
Last week, we charted Bruno Gröning's spiritual evolution as a faith healer. We left off in 1949, when, at the age of 43, Gröning became a symbol of hope to thousands of ill, physically disabled, and traumatized Germans. This week, we'll continue to track Gröning's rise to national prominence in the wake of the so-called miracle at Hereford. We'll examine the efforts of Gröning's associates to publicize and profit from the Gröning phenomenon. We'll also detail the scandals that led Groening to stand trial in 1955. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. In May of 1949, rumors spread through the city of Hereford, Germany, that a miracle healer had cured nine-year-old Dieter Holzmann of muscular dystrophy. Newspapers snatched up the story and 43-year-old Bruno Groening became an overnight sensation. He was known throughout West Germany as the miracle doctor. As thousands of Germans turned to Groening for healing, state officials in Westphalia feared they were witnessing the rise of a new, dangerous ideologue. Had Groening appeared at any other time in history, an incredulous public would have likely dismissed him as a sham prophet. However, in the wake of the Second World War and the collapse of the Nazi regime, Germany had entered a uniquely disorienting period of transition. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, she's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. To understand the groaning phenomenon, one must first understand the scale of the psychological trauma caused by World War II and the Nazis. A decade of social upheaval, war, and dictatorship had left the German population deeply scarred. Ten years of accumulated trauma manifested as an epidemic of psychosomatic illnesses. This is defined by the Center for Anxiety Disorders as a physical disease that is thought to be caused by mental factors such as stress and anxiety. Psychosomatic illnesses could present as severe muscle spasms, complete loss of motor control, debilitating chronic pain, hypertension, and in extreme cases, the sudden loss of one's sight or hearing. For thousands of Germans suffering from psychosomatic illnesses, Kroning's faith healings may have served as a form of trauma therapy. By persuading the ill and injured to trust in God's power, Kroning relieved their mental anguish. In some cases, the resulting placebo effect led to miraculous physical recoveries. Additionally, the German psychologist Wilhelm Kutmeier offers a theory that helps explain Groening's explosive popularity. Kutmeier defined the Nazi period as an era of mass madness that left the German populace particularly vulnerable to phenomena of persuasion. Essentially, Germany was struggling to recover from a prolonged period of trauma and mass delusion its citizens were reconstructing their national identity while struggling to comprehend their participation in a horrific genocide. As a result, it was the perfect moment for a prophet to emerge. As hundreds gathered in front of the Halsman residence at Seven Wilhelmsplatz, Groening felt that all he'd suffered had been in preparation for this moment. He vowed to heal his country, believing his citizens would love him in exchange. 
However, Bruno's outsized popularity wasn't due to the fact that he was loved. It wasn't even because he had supposedly healed a little boy. In truth, Groening owed his successful grand debut to his benefactor, Helmut Hulsman, and the efforts of a brilliant press coordinator named Egon Artur Schmidt. Schmidt had served as a police contact for the Nazis' Ministry of Propaganda during the Second World War. As a young officer, Schmidt worked closely with Hitler's chief propagandist, Josef Goebbels, to implement campaign strategies in the run-up to the parliamentary elections of 1933. By helping Hitler and the Nazis rise to power in Germany, Schmidt had developed a special understanding of press relations and mass persuasion techniques. While Hulsman worked with Groening out of a genuine desire to bring his healing to the masses, Schmidt was likely motivated by the opportunity to profit off of the movement. Groening, meanwhile, hoped to heal and reunify Germany by offering himself up as an instrument of God's will. To that end, he allowed Schmidt to choreograph every phase of his extraordinary debut in Hereford. From Helmut Hulsman's initial interview with reporters about Dieter's healing, to Groening's emphatic balcony address to the gathered crowd on June 24, 1949. Then, just as Groening's popularity was gaining momentum, Hereford government officials imposed a ban to prevent the 43-year-old faith healer from continuing his activities. Following the counsel of the former Nazi liaison, Groening encouraged his followers to request special permits of exemption from the municipal government. The ensuing flood of permit requests, combined with a public protest organized by Schmidt, forced Hereford's city council to briefly abandon their ban on Groening's activity. After defeating the initial ban, Groening sought to reassure skeptics that his motives were pure. Publicly, he expressed a disinterest in profiting from his healing powers. He told journalists and critical government officials that he offered his services to humanity as a free act of love. He claimed to rely entirely on the generosity of the Halsman family to survive. In actuality, Groening's public refusal to charge for healings was a clever attempt to skirt Germany's laws, which stated that a license was needed to practice natural and alternative medicine. Schmidt and Hulsman, on the other hand, weren't holding themselves out as faith healers. This meant that they weren't constrained by the same laws. As a result, they had no problem attempting to profit from groaning. To that end, when the crowds first began arriving at the Hulsman residence, Schmidt printed thousands of Bruno groaning postcards and sold them to the public. Meanwhile, Hulsman arranged private healing sessions with Groening for wealthy friends and associates in exchange for large donations. Since Hulsman and Schmidt handled the financials, it wasn't difficult to hide this money from Groening. While Schmidt and Hulsman enriched themselves, Groening kept busy. To keep up with the demand for private healings, he trained Hulsman's wife, Annalise, to be his healing assistant. Groening told Annalise that he had the ability to transmit the hailstrom through her to heal others, and sent her to nearby hospitals to visit with sick children. There, she distributed small tinfoil balls to the children, claiming they were receivers that let Groening transmit his healing current. Like other false prophets before him, Groening's innate desire to be loved could not be sated by platonic admiration alone. 
the nature of Groening's relationship with Annalise suggests that he was hardly the paragon of virtue he presented to his followers. After he'd healed her son, the two had been sleeping together behind Hulsman's back for months. And this wasn't the only trouble brewing. The opposition to the groaning phenomenon was gaining ground in June of 1949. After backing down from their initial ban on groaning's activities, Hereford's municipal government regrouped to launch a successful resistance campaign. City councillors sought condemnations of groaning from local religious leaders, such as Hermann Kunst, the local superintendent of the Protestant church, and medical authorities such as Dr. Gerhard Schursch. Schursch was the ideal groaning skeptic. As the head of the Bethel Sanatorium, his early research into psychopaths revealed that they struggled to hold down a career or a stable family life. Often these psychopaths developed delusions of leadership and would attempt to reinvent themselves as spiritual leaders or authority figures. As a result of his research, Schursch concluded that groaning displayed psychopathic personality traits. As proof, he pointed to Groening's megalomaniacal belief in God-given powers, his rumored sexual impulsivity, and the hostility he displayed towards skeptics who challenged his authority. Schursch's dire warning shifted the balance of power in favor of Hereford's government. In mid-June 1949, 43-year-old Groening and his associates learned that the city council planned to reinstate their ban on healings. Working closely with Hulsman and Schmidt, Groening prepared for a final fiery address to preempt the council's pronouncement. Then, at 11 p.m. on June 25, 1949, he appeared on the balcony of Seven Wilhelmsplatz for the last time. After performing a mass healing for the hundreds gathered below the balcony, the tenor of Groening's speech changed. He adopted a defensive posture and, in an aggrieved tone, accused his detractors of slandering God's name. He warned the crowd that those who spoke against him were marked by evil. On that combative note, Groening turned from his followers and entered the house. By 2 a.m., the crowd outside the Hulsman residence had dispersed. Ultimately, his speech was for nothing. Undeterred by Groening's posturing, Hereford enacted its ban the next day, effectively banishing him from the city. Despite the setback, Groening refused to turn away from his calling. He'd always known he'd need to leave the small city in order to heal the country eventually. He decided that it didn't matter that he was having to leave sooner than he'd imagined. He figured that it was time to move on. It was time for the groaning phenomenon to take Bavaria by storm. Coming up, as the miracle doctor sets his sights on Munich, doctors put his healings to the test. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story.
In July of 1949, facing scrutiny from medical professionals, government officials, and the national press, 43-year-old Bruno Groening was banned from Hereford, Germany. Undeterred, he took his healing show on the road. In an attempt to dispel the cloud of scrutiny and earn Groening some good publicity, Schmidt arranged for the miracle doctor to participate in a medical study of his abilities. News of the groaning phenomenon had attracted the attention of medical contributors to the German magazine Revue. They wished to verify groaning's healings in a controlled environment. 43-year-old groaning agreed to participate and traveled to Heidelberg in July of 1949. The team of researchers was led by Dr. H.G. Fischer. Fischer selected a group of trial participants from over 80,000 letters groaning had received. All the trial participants received thorough medical examinations and diagnoses from doctors before being sent to groaning for healing. This time, he had to conduct his miracles in the presence of expert witnesses. To the surprise of the doctors witnessing the trial, some of the patients did appear to spontaneously improve after participating in one of Groening's healing sessions. However, the patients who reported improvement in their symptoms suffered primarily from psychosomatic illnesses, such as thyroid conditions, muscle spasms, and chronic inflammation. These kinds of illnesses proved susceptible to the curative power of the placebo effect. In this case, Groening's Hailstrom treatment served as the placebo, improving his patient's conditions largely because said patients believed they would be healed. The results of the study baffled the researchers. They had hoped to definitively disprove Groening's abilities once and for all. Instead, Dr. H.G. Fisher was quoted in Revue saying, Bruno Groening is not a charlatan or hypnotist, but a gifted non-physician psychotherapist. Dr. Weidsecker, a psychosomatic specialist, suggested that Groening's spiritual message amounted to a powerfully persuasive form of psychosomatic therapy. He suggested that Groening should open research clinics where he could work in tandem with psychologists. Groening ultimately rejected this idea, saying that he did not wish to profit in any way from his powers. He worried that the costs involved in such treatment would deter people from seeking healing. This angered Egon Arthur Schmidt and Helmut Hulsman, who liked the idea of opening a series of profitable clinics. Groening's refusal stoked tensions within his tight circle of advisors. While they determined their next move, the group retired for a time to a private estate outside the Bavarian city of Rosenheim, known locally as the Treberhof. Groening was eager to resume his mission, while Hulsman and Schmidt were eager to continue profiting off of his movement. To that end, after a few weeks of rest and relaxation, Schmidt began pressuring local press to leak Groening's location to the public. In August 1949, Bavarian press outlets announced that Groening had been spotted at the Treberhof estate outside Rosenheim. Within a matter of days, Groening's sick and desperate followers flooded Rosenheim by the thousands. Unlike Hereford, Rosenheim's local officials were far more accommodating of Groening's unconventional practice. Rosenheim's own chief of police, Mr. Pitzer, paid Groening a visit at the end of August. 
The meeting went well, and Pitzer emerged from the Treberhof claiming that groaning had cured his sciatica. With the local authorities pacified, groaning resumed his mass healings. From the safety and seclusion of the sprawling private estate, he received as many as 30,000 visitors a day. Makeshift army camps eventually had to be established just to accommodate the massive crowds. Ironically, the unsanitary conditions of the healing camps made them a breeding ground for disease. Ultimately, the Rosenheim Health Department was forced to come to Groening's aid. At the recommendation of Rosenheim's chief health official, they installed new latrine facilities at their own expense and called on the Bavarian Red Cross to monitor the camps for signs of contagious outbreaks. Disease was not the only danger Groening's followers faced. The Treberhof camps quickly became popular targets for local thieves. After fainting on a bench, one elderly invalid woke to find that someone had stolen his wallet, watch, and even his shoes. If Groening was aware of the dangerous conditions in the Treberhof camps, he did not appear overly concerned. While Rosenheim's officials worked to mitigate the risk of contagion and exploitation, Groening, Schmidt, and Hulsman focused on launching their new Bavarian campaign. To secure his foothold in Bavaria, they planned a series of publicity tours and mass healings in cities and small towns. The tours always started the same way. Before Groening arrived for a demonstration, a motorcade of Mercedes-Benz trucks rolled through the streets. Outfitted with loudspeakers, the trucks announced Groening's arrival hours in advance. By the time Groening appeared on a street corner or nearby balcony, Thousands of people were waiting to greet him with a deafening chorus of cheers, applause, and desperate pleas for help. In this fashion, Groening toured Bavaria with his motorcade for three months, until his movement had swelled to include hundreds of thousands of Germans. In Munich, Groening came close to achieving the legitimacy he desperately craved. In one of his early events, he spoke before a crowd of 3,000 people at a random street corner. Next, he addressed an audience of doctors, scholars, and influential Germans at the Deutsche Museum. Finally, Groening performed a spectacular mass healing for 50,000 followers on Prince Regent Street. All these sizable events caused 43-year-old Groening to feel as though he was on the precipice of greatness. Then in October 1949, his momentum came to a shuddering halt. Groening's estranged wife, Gertrude, filed a suit against him to collect unpaid alimony. The ensuing case revealed that Groening's associates, Mid and Halsman, had taken hundreds of thousands of Deutschmarks in secret donations. The revelation of these payments may have come as a shock to Groening. Publicly, he'd always insisted that he offered his healing as a free act of love. When confronted with questions about Hulsman and Schmidt's donation scheme, he denied any knowledge of the plan and insisted that he'd never taken any payments himself. Ultimately, Groening and his wife settled the suit quietly. Despite this, Groening's public reputation took a massive hit, and he no longer could deny the extent to which he had been manipulated by his profiteering business partners. The tensions between Groening and Schmidt grew so severe that not only did Schmidt resign, he started slandering Groening in the press. 
Unsatisfied with merely ruining Groening's reputation, Schmidt went even further. He contacted the Bielefeld public prosecutor and offered to testify that Groening had sexually assaulted a teenage girl at the Halsman residence in Hereford. Desperate to salvage his reputation, Groening appointed a new press officer and released a statement to the media. In it, he announced that Treberhof had been officially recognized by the upper states of Bavaria as a significant place of healing. This proved to be a step too far for the local authorities, who were already facing increased pressure from state officials to put a stop to Groening's activities. As outside forces were bearing down on Groening, one of his few remaining allies was Helmut Halsman. So it was catastrophic when Halsman learned that the miracle doctor had been sleeping with his wife. After discovering the affair, Halsman condemned Groening as a sexually impulsive drunkard. Then he packed up his belongings and returned to Hereford with his soon-to-be estranged wife and son. Abandoned by his friends and on the verge of being barred from the city of Rosenheim, Groening feared that he had failed his God-given mission. More specifically, he was scared that he would never be known and adored as the man who had healed Germany. Yet just as all seemed lost, salvation appeared to Groening in the form of a businessman named Otto Meckelberg. Earlier in September 1949, Groening had healed Meckelberg's wife, Rene, of a painful thyroid condition called myxedema. Now Meckelberg returned the favor by offering to become Groening's business partner. In this offer, Groening saw his salvation. He would get one last chance to fulfill his mission. However, this seeming gift didn't come for free. In return for granting Groening's patronage wishes, Meckelberg asked for one tiny concession. He demanded that Groening grant him power of attorney over his business and personal finances. Despite these onerous terms, Groening saw it as a worthy exchange. But in signing on the dotted line, Groening had placed his life in Meckelberg's hands. Coming up, Bruno Groening makes a devil's bargain with an angel investor. Now back to the story. After reaching a peak of popularity in September 1949, 43-year-old Bruno Groening's reputation was severely damaged by a series of scandals. The groaning phenomenon appeared destined for an anticlimactic end until salvation arrived in the form of a businessman named Otto Meckelberg. After forcing Groening to sign away his financial rights, Meckelberg invited him to a luxurious hostel in the mountains. Eager to escape the cloud of malicious gossip hanging over his head, Groening agreed. While sequestered in the mountains, the two returned to an idea first posed by Dr. Weizsäcker during the Revue experiments. They decided that Groening would open a series of clinics with Meckelberg's funds. In these clinics, patients would be diagnosed by medically licensed clinicians. Then Groening would heal them using the Hailstrom technique, all while being supervised by medical experts. Since he needed these so-called experts to buy into his idea, Groening sought the support of the psychologists who had previously evaluated him. 
Unfortunately, by October 1949, Dr. H.G. Fisher had come to doubt Groening's abilities. He had concluded that while Groening possessed a strong drive, motivational presence, and developed bonds with his patients, he was nevertheless a big child, easily steerable and completely unreliable. Groening's childlike nature helps to explain why he was continuously taken in by profiteers like Schmidt and Meckelberg. On his own, Groening lacked the knowledge and instincts to create and manage a successful organization. This made him easy prey for opportunistic men. Thus, Meckelberg readily stepped into the role of Groening's financial manipulator. While Schmidt and Hulsman had done their best to keep Groening in the dark about their get-rich-quick schemes, Meckelberg preferred to manipulate him into compliance. He convinced Groening that in order to raise the money needed for their clinics, he could no longer offer his healings as a free act of love. Instead, Meckelberg routinely requested 1,000 Deutschmark donations from those who sought healing at Groening's hands. Then in January 1950, to make his money-making venture more efficient, Meckelberg helped 44-year-old Groening to establish the Association for the Investigation of Bruno Groening's Healing Methods. Immediately after being granted a business license, Meckelberg appointed himself as the managing director and awarded himself a monthly salary of 1,000 Deutschmarks. Though Groening did not take a salary, the association set aside a generous stipend from its war chest to cover his living expenses. In the first few months, the association took in over 90,000 Deutschmarks in donations. As Groening toured Wangerug, performing healings and giving speeches before enraptured crowds. By February of 1950, they had raised enough money to begin construction on their first healing clinic. To avoid violating Germany's non-licensed Medical Practitioners Act, they called the clinics research centers for the investigation of Bruno Groening's healing method. As Meckelberg broke ground on their first clinic, 44-year-old Groening was unknowingly the subject of legal scrutiny. Public prosecutors in multiple districts were coordinating their efforts in an attempt to nail him once and for all. They kept a close eye on his organization from a distance and waited for Groening to make a mistake. Groening had always insisted that he never knew the extent of Hulsman and Schmidt's embezzlement. In the Meckelberg era, however, Groening knew exactly how much money they were making. Now that he felt he had escaped legal scrutiny, he began to indulge in his more extravagant vices. While waiting to complete construction on their first healing clinic, Groening lived a life of excess in the luxurious Hotel Alpenpark. Outside the hotel grounds, he and Meckelberg spent lavishly at fine restaurants and traveled to appointments in a fleet of limousines. To fund their extravagant lifestyle, they used the bulk of the money donated to the healing association. Ironically, it was Meckelberg who gave the state prosecutors the tip they needed to launch criminal proceedings against the association. In April 1950, Meckelberg filed a criminal complaint, accusing a groaning association employee of embezzling 16,000 Deutschmarks from the organization. The filing caught the state prosecutor's attention and gave them ample justification to launch a probe into the financial structure of the company. 
After a one-year investigation, the prosecutors concluded that by charging mandatory donation fees for healings, Groening and Meckelberg had violated the Non-Licensed Medical Practitioners Act. In May 1951, the two men received summons to stand trial in Munich. The trial led to dramatic revelations that damaged Meckelberg and Groening's relationship beyond repair. Otto Meckelberg cooperated with prosecutors, testifying before the jury. He called Groening an alcoholic and philanderer. In response, Groening confessed that he had slept with Meckelberg's wife, Rene, and argued that Meckelberg wanted him imprisoned out of spite. The trial dragged on until March 1952. Despite its sensational revelations, prosecutors lacked the evidence to prove that either man knowingly committed a crime. Thus, the judge was forced to acquit Groening and Meckelberg on all charges. Free at last and eager to be rid of one another, Groening and Meckelberg went their separate ways. With Meckelberg's departure, Groening once again found himself broke, homeless, and unable to practice his healing arts. By 1953, 47-year-old Groening had grown desperate. He teamed up with another spiritual leader, Eugen Enderlin. Enderlin's main point of recommendation was that he had an alternative practitioner's license. This meant that Groening could avoid legal jeopardy by performing healings out of Enderlin's house. However, the relationship soon began to fray. Groening's frustration with his own failures, coupled with his fear that his movement was stagnating, caused him to behave in increasingly erratic ways. Soon, Enderlin began to notice the psychopathic traits that Dr. Schursch had first warned the world about back in 1949. Groening was paranoid and combative. He routinely picked fights with Enderlin. When he wasn't doing that, Groening was accusing the other man of theft. Strangely, it wasn't Groening's erratic behavior that ended the relationship. Rather, it was the way that Groening approached his faith healing sessions. Enderlin knew the danger of Groening's healing method after his attempt to heal a 17-year-old girl named Ruth Kufus in August 1950 ended in tragedy. Ruth had contracted tuberculosis and her father brought her to Groening to be healed. Under Enderlin's supervision, Groening sat with Ruth for hours, channeling Hailstrom into her upturned palms. At the end of the session, Groening stood and declared Ruth healed. According to Enderlin, Groening then told her father that there was no need to seek any further medical treatment. Due to his advice, Ruth's tuberculosis gradually consumed her, and she died a few months later. In October 1953, Enderlin went to the police and informed them of Groening's involvement with the death of Ruth Kufus. His accusations languished in an open investigation for a year until October of 1954. A group of fed-up state prosecutors looking to shut Bruno Groening down for good discovered Ruth's case. As they interviewed witnesses to beef up their evidence, an oblivious groaning clung to his waning movement, doing whatever he needed to do to make a living. He offered illicit healings in secret meetings throughout Germany. He also started endorsing dubious medical cures. Finally, after interviewing Ruth Kufus's mother, the prosecutors had enough evidence to mount their case. In January 1955, 
47-year-old Groening was summoned by the Stuttgart criminal police for questioning. He offered a barely comprehensible explanation for his healing technique, dodged questions about whether he was able to heal physical illnesses, and denied that he had told Ruth not to seek further medical treatment. The police weren't buying it. They placed Groening under arrest. Criminal proceedings in the death of Ruth Kufus began in March 1955. The trial dragged on for three years as Groening underwent multiple psychological evaluations to determine his mental competency. Based on the competency interviews, multiple psychologists concluded that Groening had a psychopathic personality. In addition, psychologist Dr. Mitrelik stated that Groening possessed neither miraculous God-given healing powers nor an inherent ability for psychosomatic therapy. Instead, he found that Groening possessed an above-average amount of suggestive power compared to a certain group of people and attributed his runaway success to a corresponding readiness from his surroundings, which also largely derived from pathological reasons. In other words, the groaning phenomenon could be summarized as an extreme case of the blind leading the blind. In Mitrelik's estimation, a traumatized population, particularly susceptible to phenomena of mass persuasion, had, in a few cases, benefited from a powerful placebo effect. As a result of their analysis, in March 1958, the court found Bruno Groening guilty in the negligent homicide of Ruth Kufus. He was sentenced to eight months in prison. His lawyer immediately appealed the verdict, but before the appeal could be resolved, 53-year-old Bruno Groening died in Paris on January 26, 1959. After his death, it was revealed that the discredited miracle healer had secretly been suffering for months from an incurable case of stomach cancer. In the years that followed, the original members of Bruno Groening's organization split off into several factions. They formed clubs dedicated to Groening's teachings all over Europe. The most enduring of these was the Bruno Groening Circle of Friends, founded by Greta Hostler in the 1970s. Greta had followed Groening after being healed in 1950. She devoted the rest of her life to sharing Groening's story, defending his legacy, and preserving his teachings for future generations. The Circle of Friends still exists today. Though they don't boast a significant following, they maintain several websites dedicated to Groening's teachings and host seminars in various locations throughout Europe and the Americas. As for Dieter Halsman, the boy whose miraculous recovery from progressive muscular dystrophy launched the Bruno Groening phenomenon, he died in 1955 at the age of 15 from complications of advanced muscular dystrophy. Thanks for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next week with a new episode. 
For more information on Bruno Groening, amongst the many sources we used, we found Florian Mildeberger's biographical essay of Bruno Groening titled Healing Current Through the Goiter, Life, Work, and Aftermath of the Miracle Healer Bruno Groening, especially helpful. And as always, you can find more episodes of Cults as well as all the podcast other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Nick Hanley, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.